0: and welcome to spy hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list but remember
1: this information is strictly for your ears only i am agent scott and i'm cam the provocateur and scott smash away executioner smash away are we talking about the film <laughs> we are talking about the film i suppose
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, we are here uh, once again, as usual, in your podcast feeds, talking about another interesting spy film. We're definitely going into the
1: depths of uh, unknown spy films here. Cam, what have we got? Yes, we are tackling 1937's Lancer Spy, which, yeah, you're right. It is quite obscure, readily available on YouTube, archive.org. There's links, of course, in the show notes, as always, when that's the case with movies. But one that, like, if you look it up on Letterboxd, for example... Not a lot of people have watched this film. Yeah, it's just us. Yeah. It's just us. And someone who wrote down, this film
0: gave me the George Sanders crying whilst hugging a St. Bernard content I never knew I needed.
1: <laughs> well, I guess that's my review for the uh, week. Uh, yeah. See you later, Scott. You can handle this one on your own. Yeah, me and, me and uh, Emmeline on
0: uh, letterbox.com will bring you the rest of this review. Should have had her on as a special guest. Should
1: have, should have. But, yeah, you know, why did we pick this one, Cam? I think it was just luck of the draw. <laughs> I think it was a case of, you know, when we go through our master list, we've got all the stuff you guys know. So, you know, your Bonds, your Mission Impossibles, borns, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, kind of all the big spy stuff. But we like to tackle obscure stuff, so we have a list of all the stuff from the 30s and 40s and 50s that haven't necessarily had long legacies or have, in some cases disappear due to poor distribution but sometimes there's real gems in the rough you know we talked about five fingers fairly recently that we loved and that is not a movie that there's any major push to get in front of people there's no criterion editions uh no kino editions like there are genuinely great spy films out there hiding and our goal is to try to find them sometimes sometimes
0: yeah it, it i think it's important for not only the longevity of the show but also just enhancing and uh, informing our discussion and debate about spy films to watch where a lot of these things came from. I mean, it's this is not our earliest film. That was actually quite recently with The General in terms of when it was released. But, you yeah, know, this is still from the 1930s, relatively early in, you know, film's legacy as a whole. I mean, it's we're almost, you know, we're 80 years removed from this film now.
1: Yeah. And I mean, what can you really say about the spy genre if you just decide that your in point for the entire genre is the 60s movement of like Bond forward? You know, there's so much stuff that the decades before that that lead into all the types of spy storytelling that is, I think, more beloved or more famous.
0: And let's be fair, the 1930s wasn't devoid of, of hit films. The 39 Steps, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Alfred Hitchcock, was cranking out some gold at this point. Mata Hari, that's another one. Not Hitchcock, but Greta Garbo. Star Vehicle, yeah. Sure thing. And these films, I feel like, inform our discussion on the later decades, because the directors of the films in the 60s and 70s were watching these films. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and a lot of the writers as well who were looking back at espionage films of the past when they were looking to tell modern stories and even you know you look at a classic like the man who knew too much remake it helps a lot to go back and watch that original and see how hitchcock you know decided to improve upon the formula what he enjoyed for about that movie what he didn't like as much about the original one to improve upon so there's a lot in terms of the past of spy films for sure Absolutely.
0: So let's let's get into it. Let's uh, lance this spy, rip our shirts off and do some fencing in the park. Before we get into it, here is your letterbox.com synopsis Lance a spy. Her kisses were death traps. <laughs> an Englishman impersonates an imprisoned German officer and returns to Germany to become a national hero. A female German spy is assigned to check him out but falls in love with him. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's the film. That is the film. That is the film. I mean, I, I guess when it comes to some of these more like, um, you know, shorter, somewhat simpler 1930s films, the synopsis isn't too hard, which is why some of them are like eight words long.
0: <laughs> That's true. That's true. But Cam, you know, we've been prancing around in the park with our shirts off fencing for too
1: long. Let's talk about it. How did we get Lance the Spy? Okay, so the behind the scenes, I feel like might be more interesting than the movie. There needs to be Ooh. a movie about the author of the book. There is a movie we will tackle called um, um, I Was a Spy from 1933 about the author of the novel, um, Lancer Spy. But I feel like we need a proper one, like a genuine A-quality picture about the author. Martha Knockhart McKenna, who she was a Belgian spy, Scott, working for the UK and its allies during World War I. Okay. Right there the credentials written by a spy how often do we get to say that i guess ian fleming
0: <laughs> it actually is few and far between you look at a lot of spy authors they maybe have worked
1: around the secret services but weren't actually out in the field yeah like this is someone who genuinely was in the field during world war one she was a nurse so she entered the military as a nurse but because of you know her profession she was able to become an agent she operated under the codename laura and because she was a nurse she could get close to german military personnel and then pass on information to the allies and she mostly at the time worked with two female belgian spies there was an elderly woman who was a vegetable seller named canteen ma and a letterbox agent named number 63 canteen Ma sounds like a star wars character It does. Would you which of us is going to
0: be more likely to be canteen ma? Well, you said she was in her 60s, so we know which one you are. I didn't even say 60s. I said elderly. <laughs> oh. Well, I think we already answered that one. I guess I'm the I'm number, Agent 66, was it? 63. Number 63. Number 63. I'll be uh, number 63. You can be uh, canteen ma.
1: <laughs> so, like McKenna had like a really interesting spy period because obviously all this stuff going on with getting close to German personnel, but even like she was um, approached and someone who was a German lodger in her in her house tried to recruit her to become a German spy, and uh, she had him killed. That got dark. Okay. Hmm. I mean, you you are right though. So far, this sounds like a film. Yes. And ultimately, McKenna was arrested after attempting to bomb an ammo dump. And she, I guess, during the process of planting these bombs in a sewer, part of her bracelet or something broke off, which had her initials, and gave her away. And so they captured her. She was sentenced to death. But then that sentence was uh, turned into a life imprisonment sentence. But then after armistice, two years later, she was freed. They found
0: her from her initials on half of a bracelet. That is some CSI-level investigative work. From the Germans. How is this not a movie, Scott? Like
1: a real movie?
0: Yeah. This has actually got a much better story than most of the stuff is on TV these days. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah. I, I this. I mean, even if this wasn't like a big blockbuster temple action film, this could at least be a Netflix release.
1: Yeah. So I am in favor of the uh, TV show, you know, McKenna, Spy.
0: <laughs> McKenna, a spy.
1: Yeah. Listen,
0: screenwriters of the world, if you're listening... There's a free story here. I doubt anyone owns the rights to it.
1: Right away. Yeah, and so after the war, she became a novelist and wrote like a dozen spy novels, also a biography, or I guess autobiography, about herself. Um, And she uh, published the novel Lancer Spy in 1937. She would later say that it was um, a sequel to My Master Spy, which was one of her earlier novels. So this film was, This book was published the same year the film came out. That's right. The rights to it were purchased by 20th Century Fox. They would float out advanced copies of the book in terms of building up promotion and whatever, and the studio, obviously someone, a reader at a studio, came across it, handed it off to the execs, and they loved it, and boom, it was sold. Easy as that. Easy as that. If you had no autobiography,
0: Cam, which I'm sure you'll write one of these days because you are a self-professed super genius. It's true. What would you call your autobiography? Camteen Maw.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> and the working title of this film was Life of a Lancer Spy, eventually shortened to Lancer Spy. I don't know that I would call it life of, because I don't really know that we got that much of a depiction of the life of a Lancer Spy in this movie. And to be fair, for a film that's got the word Lance in the title... There were no lances. Also true. Also true. And so this movie was directed by Gregory Ratoff, who was a Russian-born writer, director, producer, actor. He was a quadruple threat. He was also a World War One vet. He'd worked in Moscow theater, become an actor uh, in the early 20s in Russian films, and then moved to the U.S. And, I mean, this guy... He's really interesting because he started off as an actor in the 1930s, very early on, and put out five movies in 1932, including like there was Symphony of Six Million, which starred Irene Dunn, who was a big star at the time. And he was also in What Price Hollywood. He was about fourth build in that film. What Price Hollywood title probably means nothing to you. What Price Hollywood has been remade several times as A Star is Born. Huh. Mm-hmm.
0: A film I actually really enjoy the sort of Chris Christopherson one, anyway. Yeah. That was originally called What Price
1: Hollywood? Yes, and then they did a remake very short number of years later called A Star Is Born and they would kind of change them up where like the first official A Star Is Born was about an actress um, and then they would kind of change it to the point where you get to the Lady Gaga one and she's like a musician you know, kind of a pop star. Okay
0: I, and it is kind of about like what happens to you when you get famous and things like that, so the What Price Hollywood title makes sense, I get it.
1: Yeah. So around the mid-30s, Radoff decided to move into directing. And um, if you look it up on IMDb, his first movie is listed as Sins of Man, which was a 1936 film about an Austrian church bell ringer played by Don Amici, who tries to impart his love of music onto his two sons. That movie, I believe, was shot after Lancer Spy, but maybe released first, because anywhere you look it up, Lancer Spy is regarded as his directorial debut. So, yeah, that seems to be the case of just release order. Um, But he had, in terms of his directorial career he didn't really have anything that you would say was like a big classic film to his name, but he just worked with like a lot of stars. He did a movie with Douglas Fairbanks Jr. called the Corsican brothers, Betty Grable, a movie called footlight serenade and Myrna Loy, um, a movie called if this be sin. So someone who just worked with a lot of the big stars at the time, just not with their maybe classic vehicles. Um, here comes, here comes Cam Smith dumping on the
0: career of Gregory Ratoff.
1: (laughs) Well, you know what? Um, little later, I'll talk about some of his acting credits, and some of them are pretty darn impressive. But he was also a writer and did uncredited rewrites and helped adapt Lancer Spy to the screen, which you wouldn't know. He was also originally cast um, as one of the supporting players in this movie as a um, head man behind German lines. And that ultimately was recast just because I think he was busy with directing and really couldn't focus on acting. Is that meant to be the the sort of police chief? I'm gonna guess so because they were very vague. I believe I read this on the American Film Institute website. It might have been Turner Classic Movies, one or the other, but they didn't specify the character name.
0: I mean the only person that really is sort of the head is there's well, there's two people. There's the like the count or the lord or whatever it is, and then there's like the head of the secret police.
1: Yeah. I'm gonna guess the kind of that blustery head of secret police.
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, We'll talk about that guy in a bit But yeah, I think that's probably who he was going to play
1: Right And so yeah, he didn't have any credit for writing on this movie The credit went to Philip Dunn Who, um, pretty prolific writer in classic Hollywood Um, Began in 1932 with uncredited work on a movie called Me and My Gal Which was a Spencer Tracy film at the time But like very quickly really made a name for himself A couple years later, he did an adaptation of The Count of Monte Cristo that was a hit. Uh, In 1936, he wrote The Last of the Mohicans, which was remade many years later as a classic Daniel Day-Lewis, Michael Mann film that we all know. And in 1941, he wrote How Green Was My Valley for John Ford, which won the Best Picture that year, beating out Citizen Kane. And he wrote one of my favorite movies of all time, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, which actually had a supporting role by George Sanders in it. Uh, But a few other things He also uh, wrote The Robe Which was a Richard Burton biblical epic That I'm sure some people have seen It's not one of my favorite biblical epics But it's a very big, expensive one
0: I'm more of a The Bible in the beginning kind of guy
1: (laughs) Who isn't? Who isn't? Well, some say I'm still watching it It's uh, that long You're going to have to watch that one day Because it comes up, it seems, a lot
0: When we do behind-the-scenes stuff It It haunts me It haunts me, much like the venereal disease,
1: but that's a whole other problem. (laughs) That was another movie. (laughs) Mom and Dad, I think that was called. And uh, So, Philip Dunn would ultimately move into directing in the mid-50s, and kind of similar to Radoff, where it's like a string of movies. I think he did 10, but nothing that's like a big hit, but just some notable star vehicles. Like, he directed a um, Richard Burton movie called Prince of Players, a Ray Milland film, kind of a um, Cold War courtroom drama um, called uh, Three Brave Men, and then a Gary Cooper film called Ten North Frederick. Again, these are not like big prestige titles, but again, like Radoff working with a lot of big stars at the time.
0: So they're both, you know, Ratoff and Dunn, and steady hands. Definitely. Yeah. 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 The, the 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 sort of easy go-to studio, like, oh, he could do it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, sure.
1: Yeah. Especially if this novel is um this, the rights to it are snapped up very quickly to movie release. They wanted this thing out quick. Sure. Sure.
0: And and we're still talking about it now.
1: Mhm. Mhm. We are indeed. We
0: may be the only one. I I think I can confirm. We are the only one. <laughs> the, the film has the film has four reviews on IMDb. Only four, huh? Critic reviews. There's 6 users too. So I guess 10. 10 people have seen this film. We can confirm that much. I think there's twelve reviews on Letterboxd, yeah. So currently, twenty-two people we can confirm, unless there's a crossover between the the ten and the twelve. Twenty-two people plus us, there are at least twenty-four people that can say they've seen
1: Lancer Spy. But we have cornered the market on Lancer Spy podcasting.
0: Oh, for sure. All 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 handful of people listening will uh, be <laughs>
1: big. They'll be lancing their nearest spy anytime soon. <laughs> and so this was the first lead role for george sanders who beloved actor just unbelievable and i think we've all seen george sanders in something i think to people of a certain age they will know him as the voice of Sher khan in the disney jungle book which was the first introduction i ever had but you know he's in hitchcock's rebecca the ghost and mrs muir um all about eve he is just one of the great actors of his time And um, he'd been playing kind of smaller roles. This was his first starring uh, role. And um, I found notes online that there was original talk that Michael Whalen, who was kind of an obscure, uh, somewhat B actor, was rumored for the role. I couldn't find this on like kind of your AFI kind of really, you know, credential sources. But um, I looked up Michael Whalen, his best Credit was probably in a Shirley Temple movie called The Poor Little Rich Girl, where he was like fifth or sixth build, but his name is sometimes attached to this movie, but George Sanders clearly was the, I think, the right choice and uh, became a huge star shortly after.
0: I, I have some things to say about George Sanders, but I will save that.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, As for the female lead, French actress Germaine Aussie was initially hired to play this role, and was replaced by um, Dolores Del Rio once production began. Couldn't find any reason why, but if you look at Jermaine uh, Aussi's IMDb page, I think all of her credits are in French films, so there may have been some issues with language there. That's fair enough. It's interesting
0: that uh, you, know, you mentioned George first, but Dolores is actually credited as the first actor on the film.
1: But would Jermaine Aussie have been uh, credited
0: first? That's the question. Well, I think that depends on your mileage with George Sanders.
1: Oh, Scott, you're making me nervous. <laughs> uh. um, Another actor. This movie actually had a lot of re- uh, weird recasting situations where um, usually when we talk about movies, there's usually like one, maybe two. This one had a few. The central concept of this film is about
0: recasting. So it mm. makes sense.
1: Yeah. Colin Clive was cast as Colonel Fenwick. Uh, Colin Clive, best known as Dr. Frankenstein in the universal horror films Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, like some of the all-time great horror films, uh, had severe alcoholism and left this movie due to illness and died in 1937 of pneumonia caused by alcoholism. So, yeah, he was replaced by Lionel Atwell, who's just like one of those kind of classical supporting characters who's in probably... Almost every movie you've ever seen from this time period. Mm. Just one of those guys that sort of rolls from
0: set to set, collecting a paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's it's, it's how I'd like to navigate Hollywood.
1: Yeah. Always reliable. Always delivers.
0: Yeah. yeah. I want to be like, you know, one of those background actors one day where they're just kind of in everything. Mm -hmm. Like Tony Todd. Great actor. He's in everything. Yeah. Has he
1: ever had really like the role? Candyman. You say
0: that, but like I've never seen Candy
1: Man. I'd say Candy Man's probably his most iconic role.
0: Sure, but like when you say Tony Todd, do people instantly go to
1: Candy Man. I think so. I think so. But I will say this: like, um, especially in the early nineties, when you're making Candy Man, horror is a little disreputable as a fr- or as a genre. So it's not until later years where Candy Man is recognized as a more important film. So I don't think it gave him necessarily the career bump. He might have gotten now if he were to make a movie like that. Um, Well, I'm sure a remake of Candyman is on its way. Already came out two years ago, Scott. Where have you been? (laughs) I I haven't had (laughs) enough candy, clearly. (laughs) And there was also three Candyman sequels. And a baby? (laughs) Not a baby yet. Child of (laughs) Candyman has yet to come out. Oh. Another weird casting story. The role... um, That is uh, uh, the character of Fritz Mueller in the film, which is played by Fritz Feld. Originally, the studio cast an actor named Leonid Kinsky, who I'm not particularly familiar with. But part of the uh, criteria for him (laughs) getting the job.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's just the way you're like, I'm
1: not particularly familiar. Who
0: is Cam? Who is familiar with Leonid, whatever his name is? (laughs)
1: well the story is what's entertaining not necessarily the uh, the, uh, the, the grand personality of uh, Leonid uh, Kinsky Leonid Hard starts next
0: week folks tune in
1: <laughs> he was cast with the criteria that he had to have a short haircut for the role and so he went and got the haircut and then they didn't give him the job so they had to pay him $500 uh, for having done this to leave the movie basically <laughs> it's no wonder you gravitated towards that story because you've been asked to leave many places now in Hollywood there is actually in most contracts the Leonid stipulation to uh, guarantee <laughs> employment and that is his legacy that's why we all think of Leonid today <laughs> I like that the stipulation is named for his first name not his last <laughs> it's about as memorable as his career yeah, yeah. Ooh, that was low I'm sorry Leonid we love you We do. Um, I'm sure we'll talk all about Leonid Star vehicles in upcoming episodes of Spy (laughs) Hearts. I just hear everyone clicking unsubscribe. (laughs) I could not find any any financial information for this movie whatsoever. Not even Cam. Listen, (laughs) this is like one of the longest behind the scenes you've ever done,
0: and you've picked it for Lance's Spy. Could you not just (laughs) like mediate what you do when it comes to the
1: research? I mean, God. (laughs) All right, what were the numbers? Come on, don't have any. Couldn't find them anywhere. Couldn't even find a sentence saying the movie was a success, for example, or a bomb. I couldn't find mention of anything. All I can tell you, the top three for the year, number one was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Number two was Saratoga, which was a Clark Gable, Gene Harlow um, rom- uh, romantic comedy. And then third place was Maytime, uh, starring Jeanette MacDonald as an aging opera star who looks back on her life. Very dramatic sentence there. Well done, Cam. Just a couple of final notes uh, on this film. George Sanders would go on to win Best Supporting Actor for All About Eve in 1951 and also would co-star in that movie with director George Ratoff, who would appear as the character Max Fabian. That is an all-time classic movie from the director of Five Fingers. I recommend you check out All About Eve if you haven't seen it. Can you imagine on the set of that film, at one
0: point they were like, God. Do you remember Lance the Spy? What a, what a good set that was.
1: Do you think it came up? It had to, right? It had to. Is that their only connection? It never worked again. I can't say that. I didn't go through every single credit, you know, that uh, George Sanders ever made. There
0: goes your credibility, young man. I know.
1: I know. And uh, actually, you should just note, too, that Gregory Radoff closed out his career in 1960 with an appearance in the Paul Newman film Exodus, and he died that same year. So that is a movie that is... um. It's a bit of a journey to get through. Uh, It's quite a journey, but that does mark the final um, big on-screen appearance of Gregory Ratoff, the director of Lancer Spy. It truly was his exodus. A grand exodus it was. That was bad.
0: (laughs) Well, Cam, thanks for the breakfast and the shirt and, of course, the behind the scenes on Lancer Spy, but let's get into it. What do we think of the film? I'm going to go first. Please. George Sanders, man, Uh-oh. I've got a lot to say about George Sanders. Now, I've not seen any of these films that won him awards. Sure, I'm sure in the 15. You've year- seen the Jungle Book, right? The original. Okay, I've seen him voice. I've seen his voice work. Yeah, okay. I've heard his voice work in this film. I I give him credit. He is pulling double duty. He's playing two characters. I've got a lot of time for him. But by golly, is he as stiff as the uniform he's wearing? It is. I find this film to be utterly impenetrable in any way, shape, or form. I felt zero emotion (laughs) both times I watched it. It's not like it was a bad film. I think the concept is actually quite intriguing. I've seen these sorts of stories before, almost like Freaky Friday-esque in a way where the body's swapping, but nothing about it got got its claws into me almost, and I, I... I was hoping George would sort of step up to the mark and be entertaining, but he's just kind of, it feels like he's just sort of there in the scenes. like Because he's, he's playing this bumbling German in the latter half of the film. And I just got that impression that that was it. There was nothing else to the film. I
1: was just utterly, not bored, but just frustrated watching it, I have to say. It's interesting because i think i enjoyed his work in this more but did it feel to you a little bit because this is a 20th century fox american film that they were playing it very like stiff upper lip british often at the expense of any sort of emotion
0: yes perhaps although i think that also implies to the sort of german side of things too They, they also have sort of that that sort of upright attitude about things and i will give this film a tick for also starting off with british parliament which is what all films of this decade should be doing i would say i also loved it, it had the bold words all in caps espionage across the screen that that'll probably be the uh the banner for our twitter page that for the week this is out yeah that's awesome yeah um uh, yeah i <laughs> There's bits I enjoyed about this film. I like the plot. I like what it's trying to do. I think any film where the main character's nickname is Putsy is going to get at least one mark for me. But its lead, which it hinges on, doesn't work for me. And the other part this film hinges on, which is a love story, is the most (laughs) (laughs) out-of-the-left-field choice I was like, one minute she's like, oh, yeah, I, I, I'm i lying my way to get to know you. And then the next week she's like, I'm going to betray
1: my entire country to help you. Yeah, let's put that one on the back burner for a little bit. Uh, I think there's a category where I will be talking about that uh, somewhat at length. Because um, yeah. that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. But what do you think? So this one, um, it entertained me. Uh, I found it a very quick, breezy watch. It is a movie that feels like kind of a B movie programmer, you know, because in those days you'd get double features and you may have something like an A picture, which could be, I don't know if the years quite line up, but say like a bringing up baby, which I think was the next year. But like, there's your A picture. And then maybe you have Lancer Spy as your B movie lead in. In that regard, I found this movie quite entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a really fun concept that I haven't really seen before, at least played out in the way it's done here, um, where you have this, yeah, this double for a German uh, prisoner of war and sending him in to run an espionage mission. I liked kind of how it portrayed all like the infighting of the Germans. It felt in many ways like it was also commenting on the rise of germany's powers leading into world war ii which is going to be a couple years later it felt like there was a little bit of commentary going on there sure that was probably richer for an audience back then than maybe it is now like maybe it's a little bit lost on me but i think an audience then would have really appreciated it um it has several sequences or bits that I was like, oh, that's kind of clever or that's fun to see and the sort of thing we would see develop more. Like there's some action in this that's, you know, of its time, but I appreciated that it was trying to do kind of like a fast-paced, suspenseful sequence. There's memorable moments throughout, which is something I pray for because you and I have tackled a couple of these really old films, especially ones that are like barely over an hour where there's just so little to kind of comment on or they feel just a little too simple or superficial. Whereas like this one, I was making a lot of notes and there was a lot of even just like quirky parts that I was like, oh, we got to mention that on the podcast. That's really fun. So it entertained me in that way. But I agree with you when it comes to like, you know, the the love story and kind of working as a fully fleshed out, immersive, espionage story it leaves you wanting a little bit but as sort of a uh fun 80 minutes to sit and watch i was entertained
0: i mean that's entirely fair I, you know I, I could entertain myself for the 80 minutes by trying to count how many times people
1: liked their pipes <laughs> well like i found this one for example more entertaining just to sit down and watch than say like british agent
0: i i see that this is what i sort of said in my topic. There's bits I liked about this film. It was okay to watch. I just didn't enjoy the watch. I think British Agent was actually a lot harder to watch. I think I was probably more frustrated sitting through that than I was this. And, and and I think if we're going to sort of maybe mosey on over to you know, the things we liked, I think that when this film shines, it's when it's with its secondary cast. Yeah. We didn't really mention off the top, but Peter Laurie's in this film. Yeah, and he's great. I can't name a Peter Laurie performance I didn't like. And once again, he outshines his own police commissioner or whoever that guy is. Uh, You know, he is. And there's a reason why Peter Laurie is featured on the poster for this film and his boss isn't.
1: Yeah, because in this, he plays a member of uh, Imperial Intelligence. Sure. Who are basically the threat looming over George Sanders in the movie. Like, will they discover who he is? And I like how the movie really does tackle the whole bureaucracy of Mm -hmm. like them wanting to find him out, but how they're kind of butting heads with like, you know, the prince who gets in the way and is kind of a bumbler. Um, And just like, there's all these various elements all butting up against each other that kind of help explain the success of the George Sanders character. It doesn't feel like a movie where this kind of like, you know how there's like so many of these movies we've seen where it's someone who's not really a spy is sent in as a spy and kind of just succeeds because they're, kind of smart mm. and circumstances work out okay. In this case, I could kind of buy that all these, you know, various German uh people that could expose him are all butting heads and distracted with their own little battles and infighting, that he could succeed in what he's doing. It actually made sense to me. It does make sense, but I still think it, it hinders the film a little bit because
0: from a sort of storytelling perspective, your lead is not driving the story. Your lead is kind of a passenger to everyone else's choice. And for me, it, it's harder to sort of root for someone when
1: they're literally just sat back eating a bowl of goulash. Well, like, his mission is to go and find out what, like, the German High Command's plans are, um, mm-hmm. basically, yeah. for World War I. But, like, what really is specifically his mission when he gets there?
0: I got the impression it was just to see what you can find. It was like uh, putting the feelers out, which is, uh, yeah, let's let's be fair. This film treats soldiers with a disposability that's um, frankly true and horrifying in its own other way. It's not really often mentioned, but they are just just, it's like meat into the grinder at some points in this film. And it's really unfortunate that it doesn't actually deal with any of those heavy subjects. It, It brushes the past. I mean, there's some deaths that happen later on in the film that are basically just off camera mentioned. Uh, that's quite unfortunate. But yeah, I just got the feeling he was sent there as just like, see what you can find and get back to us. Good luck.
1: See you later. Yeah, because he's doubling this, you know, uh German officer that they have captured. So he would have a certain access through his social circles. And a lot of the movie is George Sanders' character going to social events, mingling with all these various high powered German figures. um but you don't get a lot of, like, mission-based stuff. It is somewhat, um sometimes a little coincidental how things work out in his favor. It doesn't feel like there's a game plan. It's more just like, we're going to drop you here and see what happens.
0: Which I think
1: probably leads into why I had problems
0: with the character of George Sanders, which I'll get to in the dislikes. But if I'm going to point out things I did like, it, yeah, it's the side characters. It It's stuff like Peter Lorre's major Siegfried gruning. I mean, he's not given too much to do but whenever he's talking it's classic peter Laurie, just doing weird things with his dialogue to be memorable and and having strange speech patterns which always stand out also I want to shout out to you know, fritz feld who we mentioned earlier he plays fritz muller which is uh george Sanders' sort of assistant mm. basically he plays like an assistant and a small character part but his moments always pop as he's just a bit strange yeah I liked that. Yeah, so characters like that really pop. Also, the Maurice Moscovich's General von Meinhardt, again, just kind of this old, like old bloke who's just sort of happy with his place in the world. I mean, he does have the world's most inconvenient heart attack.
1: <laughs> that is amazing. Where they go to, um, to the love interest. Is it her house? It's her Daria house. Daria Sunnell's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Daria Sunnell's the character's name. Dolores Del Rio's character, and she's going to make goulash. For um George Sanders and this elderly gentleman, and like the elderly guy who loves his goulash mm. eats it, drops dead of a heart attack, and the muted response to his death is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote in my notes they do absolutely nothing
0: to help i, I I'm not saying c p r existed in nineteen thirty seven <laughs> but they're like well he's dead uh, not nineteen thirty seven this is like nineteen uh, what 18 year the... I
1: suppose 18 maybe 19 during World War 1 isn't it it's during World War 1 so yeah yeah because yeah. 18 is the end of the war so oh yeah
0: well, you're right yeah yeah 16 yeah well it, 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 I'm just glad modern medicine exists because if I have a heart attack I wouldn't want everyone in my house being like well guess he's
1: dead on to the next one but what's amazing too is like he dies George Sanders' character is like kind of checking him like what happened Dolores Del Rio walks out, could not even, like, her pulse doesn't even quicken at all. It's just like, oh, he died, huh? Well, I mean, she is a spy. One
0: one could suggest that uh, her cooking is awful. Well, I just thought she'd poison the goulash. I was like, that would make sense. That would make sense, but it's never mentioned. No, it's not. No. And I, I will also point out, Cam and I both watched a version on YouTube, which we'll have a link to below, But it is slightly chopped down. I'm not saying there's anything missing from that scene in particular. But there's a couple of edits you'll notice if you watch that version that are very obvious. So maybe there was something there
1: that we didn't see. I don't know. Yeah, there's a bit where, for example, George Sanders gets sucker punched when he's made his escape from this prison. You know, part of his cover is he has to escape from a prison where the German is being held. And um, makes his way onto a boat and tries to get the boat to actually bring him to shore and they sucker punch him and throw him off the boat and keep his money. But like the actual sucker punching was very clearly edited to shreds.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a few moments like that. I'm not sure why, but hey, we'll take what version
1: we can get. But Cam, any other likes you wanted to mention? Well, I just wanted to double back on what you were saying about Peter Lorre, who I actually okay. think he's not doing a lot. It's not like some of the other films we've tackled. Man Who Knew Too Much, for example. He's doing quite a bit throughout that movie and very memorable sure. as a villain. But... um I thought the scenes with him and Sig Ruman, as his superior officer, who's kind of this like blustering figure, who, you know, the, two, the way the two of them play their scenes, it's very clear that Peter Lorre is the brains of this Imperial intelligence. And Sig Ruman's character, um, Lieutenant Colonel Gottfried Holland, he is the figurehead, it seems like. And the person who thinks he's in charge, but every time they cut back to Peter Laurie, he'll say things like, just leave it to me. Just leave it to me. And I love that sort of cool, calm, very calculating Peter Laurie. You don't get like a huge payoff to that character. There's no final confrontation with him and George Sanders. But I just thought like in terms of establishing a dynamic between two antagonists, this was really, really interesting stuff.
0: I will say in Sig Ruhmann's, uh Lieutenant Colonel Godfrey Holland's defense, he is the one who suspects George Sanders' uh, Baron von Rollback as being a spy because how on earth would he escape from this prison in, I think it was Bristol or somewhere like that in the UK? I don't think we have any prisons and castles here. I don't think we did in 1916 either, but you never know. Oh, Medwick Prison in Norfolk norfolk
1: norfolk yeah thank you uh does that not exist i mean i haven't visited it cam i'm sorry (laughs) because i was gonna ask if you'd done like a tour of lancer spy (laughs) locations since you'd watched it you turn up at the prison tour and they're like
0: well you know we filmed quite a few films here i'm like excuse me where's the lancer spy (laughs) scenes (laughs) (laughs) has croydon airport changed much I I I don't think Croydon Airport is much used anymore. It's definitely not an international airport that's used in London. It may still be an airstrip that's used, much like one near my house, but uh, yeah, it's it's not it's not one people use for commercial traffic.
1: You guys are just stripping away the history of Lancer Spy over there. <laughs> At least you pronounced Croydon correctly. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. But uh, and speaking of the Gottfried Holland character, like you were just saying, some defense for him. Something else that's interesting is he actually does almost get one over on um on the Sanders character, where he does come up with a plan to basically sacrifice one of his own agents in who's embedded with the British. Mm-hmm. And Sanders almost falls for it. It's a last-minute save that we'll get to in the dislikes um, that ultimately doesn't let, you know, this German uh, intelligence officer succeed. But he is successful in his own way. It's just very showy. Like, he'll play drunk and be this kind of, like... Rambunctious character, whereas like Peter Lorre is just like this ice cold assassin type. And I think honestly, like I would watch a whole movie just about these two's like working relationship.
0: It's it's a it's a real like double act, isn't it? It's uh yeah. I, I'd like to see what they get up to, what spy jinks they can they can do. Because they're meant to be a a spy agency. I got the impression because when yeah they're doing a salute to them, it's like oh put, uh, the men who make spies quiver in their boots or something like that. Yeah. It seems to be the case, yeah. yeah the The Spy follow up we never got.
1: Yeah, and there's like this kind of headbutting between the intelligence service, the military, and then this like um, ruler, the the prince or whatever.
0: Yeah, I, I wasn't sure about the whole royal family of Germany or whatever it was implied. I'm I'm not au okay fait when it comes to German politics particularly. I don't know. I didn't know they had a royal family or if they did. I don't know, but it does seem to be like. Well, there is a prince in the film and things like that, so
1: I guess there is some sort of royalty at this point. I was in the same boat as you. I wasn't sure, but I just accepted that the prince had power over them, and the prince was also a bit of a goofball.
0: I mean, I wish you stopped punching me in the face and stealing my money and throwing me off the boat, but... (laughs) We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the Spy Game, requires considerable resources... Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top-secret volcano lair, we're putting out
1: the call for your support. That's right, as you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes, where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got?
0: in our crosshairs this month.
1: April's over, so now it's time to play catch-up with episodes on Escape from New York, Psycho, and the latest edition of The Debrief. Do you accept the assignment? And if that sounds
0: delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam,
1: resume the spy jinx. Uh, Something I liked about the film was I actually thought there was some genuine tension when you had the, uh, you know, Sanders character of uh, Michael Bruce going on the run at the end to escape. Yeah. All of his stuff about trying to reach the border and get to freedom. I mentioned it earlier. The action doesn't necessarily hold up through 2023 eyes. There's a lot of fast cranking the camera to make the car chase look like it's really fast when it looks you know you could picture benny hill music being played over top of it some some plonky keys in the background yeah yeah but i appreciated they were creating an action sequence and it actually had some interesting elements where he's crashing the car to get away from them and then disappearing into the swamp elements like that i thought the um sequence of him on the train was actually quite effective and had one of my favorite Um, unintentionally hilarious moments. We have a few of these on the show where characters, going back to the Macintosh man, Uh. out of nowhere, just dive off of vehicles. And George Sanders has a moment in this movie where he's trying in disguise to escape um, to Switzerland. And he's on this train and he's posing as like a porter and he goes in to help an old couple or whatever, you know, through his cover and um, then sees that the Germans have gotten onto the train are investigating and he goes in pulls that brake and just dives out that window like nobody cares yeah he is he doesn't even stop to like maybe open the
0: window he is just going straight <laughs> through it I mean i I do love using that Macintosh man gif
1: online sometimes but this may be the updated version we've got a couple recently because we had um uh James Mason like being like there he goes there he goes and then they look out the window and they see him like running through the courtyard. Printing away and then there was also one in like murderer's
0: row or the silences something like that where they jumped out the hovercraft window that's right yes but i thought
1: this one was truly amazing it's it's a, it's a hell of a stunt yeah and just all the tension of that entire escape sequence the way it leads up to him being found by those like you know the priests at the monastery and having that realization that he's in switzerland i actually thought was a pretty effective emotional moment for george sanders i thought that really worked
0: that that did actually work for me too. That was a nice moment with the St. Bernard's finding him and stuff as well. And you, you thinking he's like vicious dogs that's chasing after him, but it's just two cuddly St. Bernard's. Yeah. Uh, But it, I I will also say that at that point in the train, the film just becomes the 39 steps for about 10 minutes. That is true. Yes, it does a little bit. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. He jumps out the train. gets away from the train and runs through the moors for a while. There was one bit during the escape though, where he posed as like a shell-shocked soldier. Yeah. And I was like, initially, like, what is he doing? What, what is it? Yes. Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-oh. Pull up. Pull, Pull up, up, George. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until, like, the German uh, soldier said, oh, he's shell-shocked. I was like, whew, okay. <laughs> I could have ended that review very quickly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that, that could have gone badly. But, yeah, I think that's me sort of wrapped up for likes. Yeah, I mean, I was, I think, more positive on George Sanders. Um, I think he would go on to do far more dynamic work than he's going to do in this movie. But I think he's a pretty good audience avatar character once he's, you know, enmeshed in this mission. I also thought he was actually pretty good as the German that he's posing as. Like, he plays dual roles. And I thought both of them were pretty distinct and seemed like different individuals. And it speaks to this guy that this was his first starring vehicle that he pulls that off. I, I will just say that this is
0: perhaps a little bit mean and a little bit below the belt but I, I wrote it down in my notes so I feel compelled to talk about it George Sanders in that German uniform with the high collar and then he's got the haircut that basically removes all of his like a fade at the sides basically all skin on the sides yeah he looks just like the thumb thumbs from Spy Kids <laughs> wow <laughs> I I couldn't get it out of my head. Maybe that's why I had so much trouble watching
1: him, because I just imagined him sort of running around and bumping into walls. I just have so much goodwill for George Sanders that maybe I was just really excited to see him in a role that's quite different than what I'm typically familiar with seeing him do. Like, it felt like a real novelty to me to have George Sanders as the lead in a spy film playing, you know, an undercover operative who's, like, also a soldier. Like, these aren't the sorts of roles that I typically think of when I think of him. He's pretty famous for playing, like, Cads a lot of the time. Listen, listen,
0: listen. If this uh, this episode somehow falls on the desk of the George Sanders fan club, I'm sorry. I'm sure he is a wonderful person, actor, philanthropist, uh, all the nice things a person could be. But in this film, it didn't work for me
1: that's fair and you know what maybe this this is his first professional leading man role so maybe if you were to see the evolution you'd go oh man he really grew into something i appreciate but i found his initial role a little rocky i just i think had more of a novelty factor for me because it's not something i'm t- typically used to seeing him do no that that makes perfect sense and I, yeah i think we've definitely tackled the uh
0: extraordinary side of this film but let's look at the uh Unextraordinary extraordinary parts of this film. I think we both mentioned the love affair. Yeah. That is really the one to talk about off the top
1: here. Yeah, and it's notable, you know, Dolores Del Rio is the number one build uh, actor in the film. We really haven't spoken that much about her. And it's because this character is an absolute mess. Yep. I don't know what's going on with this character. She's introduced initially as um, being the uh like the romantic partner of um
0: long term bruce's
1: romantic long term of michael bruce's cover you know character which is this baron kurt von robach figure that he's posing as so she and robach apparently had this long relationship now you gotta you gotta accept that she's gonna not recognize that this man isn't her partner which i think in real life anyone would um But nonetheless, I'm willing to put that aside. It's a movie convention I've seen a billion times. Face off, uh, famously, of course. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. like uh, in that case, I was, okay, okay, that's fine. And then we find out she doesn't actually know him. And then I'm going, oh, this is even better. She doesn't actually know who he is. That's actually more interesting. And that she's posing as someone who fell in love with him because he's being used as this propaganda tool. Again, a good concept. I like that he was like this turned into this big propaganda tool. This like, you know, homecoming hero or something. Thought that was great. There's there's smart things here. And I think a lot of it comes back to that original book.
0: Yeah. She clearly knew what she was talking about.
1: Yeah. That stuff, great. So then you find out she doesn't actually know him. Works for me. Then we find out she's an agent. And I'm leaning forward. I'm like, that's even more interesting. They have actually Mm -hmm. pulled back on something that I thought was going to be very clunky. And are turning it into something that's quite interesting. Where she's an agent who has a real sense of the lay of the land. Could pose a threat to him. Then there is a pivot out of nowhere with no buildup whatsoever. Where she basically, as you said, sells out her country, clues him in about this plot that the Imperial Intelligence is going to use to expose him, and sacrifices not only her standing as an agent, also ultimately her life for him with nothing. There's no foundation for a romance. We've talked about awkward romances or at least haphazard romances in some older films where you kind of got to to accept that people fall in love very quickly. Mm -hmm. This wasn't quick. This was like skipping over the work.
0: It was asking us as an audience to just accept they were in love without laying any foundation whatsoever. And I think about a film we spoke about recently, The Emperor's Candlesticks. Mm. That has a love affair that comes quite late in the game at the cost of what could have been their lives. There are stakes involved but it does a much better job at sticking the landing of, of the stakes involved of them betraying their countries for each other. Dolores Del Rio's character I, turns on a dime. I, and and it, it's not like, it's, it's, not even like it's, it's not earned. It just doesn't make any sense. You could, you could have the exact same outcome without having them in love. Yeah. She could just understand that her position is fraught and she should give away intel to try and help the allied position by getting this information back to England because she can't get the information back. Or like keeping this spy in the game, George Sanders, is, makes more sense for her cover than, than blowing his cover because they might ask questions about her. And then she gives him the intel. Making them in love makes absolutely zero sense for the film. You sit there going, what is this? And then they say, like, like, because this film is so short, about 10 minutes later, oh, yeah, she was killed off screen. Yeah. What is the point? And also, I will also have, I take major umbrage with the outfit she chooses to cook goulash in. (laughs) I, I I don't dress very well. You are watching me on camera now, Cam. I'm sorry. Listeners at home only have to hear my annoying voice. I wear a lot of lounge pants. I don't go out much. That's fine. This lady is cooking goulash in... She's not dressed to the nines. She's dressed to the tens. <laughs> or the 11s in Spinal Tap uh, vernacular. Yes, of course. I, I, I mean, that's a little nitpick, but I don't know. I found it b- completely bizarre. And so I just felt then they clearly didn't care what the character was doing. It was more just about having Dolores Del Rio in the film.
1: Yes. I mean, star of the era. They clearly recognize her glamour potential because they make her look like a million bucks in every scene there's like big dance numbers and stuff like that where they're really showing her off and it's like i don't my issues aren't even with her performance she's fine no i think she definitely brings movie star you know wattage to this thing because george sanders unproven as a lead makes sense to have someone who is much more of that you know bright shining star at the center of it so she's great in that regard but like in terms of the writing of this character it does not hold up at all at all i can i can look past say like the um very fast romance of british agent or or a movie like that because i go yeah yeah you know in those days it's like if you're gonna make a a movie with a male and a female character they're gonna fall in love at some point but at least that one give me some violins and a moment like a tender moment that shows that the characters are falling in love on a dime and I'll go got it I'm with it okay oh you're proposing already makes sense to me sure go for it life is very short in the 30s man you got to get on it that's right this movie though doesn't give you that it doesn't give you that moment where they really look at each other you know some music swells and you get a sense of like the evolution of their relationship it is just like snap your fingers it just happened you think of a film of the year
0: or something like notorious in the next decade that's a frosty relationship that falls into a love affair and it's earned it's paved its path from point a to point b this doesn't even jump it teleports from a to b <laughs> uh it, it it sticks a lance through uh credibility of the film it it's a really really rough choice, and I just don't understand it and I have to think that i mean obviously this is a made up story by the by the author and then probably changed by the writer slash writers of the film. I I would almost suggest that the original story of the book had more time for the relationship if that does indeed feature in the book. Yeah. And probably gives it more time to breathe and and feel more earned by the time she does give up her entire livelihood
1: for this guy she's known all of two days. And this movie has bookends on it where (laughs) you have like uh, Michael Bruce's superior officer sitting on a plane Explaining to this female passenger about who this man is on the plane. And you don't see him at that point. Um, and they use that as sort of a teaser and then flashback two years ago and then tell the events of the film. You go back to the end and we get this, you know, officer pointing to this woman and saying, There he is, and it's Michael Bruce going to lay flowers on, you know, um, on uh Dolores Darius Sonnell's grave, like he does every year. And I'm like, that's your story. Your story is about the guilt he feels, the connection they had together, why this... Because we learn about Michael Bruce. He's married. He has a child. He has a life. It's not like this is a single guy being sent in on a mission. You have to understand how he feels such a powerful connection to this female spy in the field and feels compelled like he has to go back and leave those flowers every year. And the movie did not give me that. That ending was so unearned.
0: And this will pivot me slightly into my big dislike that I want to mention. But I'll I'll also tag it onto what you were just saying because George Sanders' character is, is in the British military. It's war. He, of course, is in the military. But he is, you know, his death is faked so he can go undercover. They tell his wife and child at home, who briefly feature in the film, that he's dead. They, they, they fake his death. I, I don't know if he can actually go back to his real life after this. So there is, an, and there's a genuine sense of heartbreak from him at one point when he realizes the life that he has known is over. And the wife also plays a part later on when the Germans are investigating him in England. But like, and so, and this sort of leads me into my problem. This film has two contrasting tones that don't seem to mesh. And this, this line has been walked before much better. But at times this film wants to be like a yuck-yuck comedy. You've got, you know, the two guys with their shirts off fencing in the field. What was with, that? I, I, and, and, like, the prince is like, oh, don't let them stop. We're just having fun. And there's a little bit of coding there with that character, I think. Yes. Yeah. Not particularly covert there. Um, but, and all these kinds of, like, farcical scenes that that, that he's getting himself into. The, the Fritzfeld Mueller character that plays his, like, assistant is bemused at one point because his boots are shiny all of a sudden and he's getting reamed out for that. Bizarre moments. Jumping out the window. Crazy moment. But then it, it, like, pivots to this sense of tragedy that the film wants to have at the same time, all within the space of less than 80
1: minutes. It's a bit of an ask. A bit of an ask. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, it just feels like, it. you know, you could flesh this out to be a little more uh, coherent In terms of its emotional journey but at the same time it's totally like a 80 minute programmer or something like that like i get why it exists in the form it does and i try not to hold that against the movie but i just think the movie's asking a lot of the audience at a certain point and it just doesn't quite deliver just enough to to really warrant that you
0: can't ask me to care and then tell me jokes sure like i I feel like I just feel like they don't blend or maybe they I'll take it back. There's been films that have blended serious and comedy many times and a lot of like TV shows I watched, Scrubs is always a prime example of one week it's it's jokes off every scene and then the next, you know, episode it's you know, cracking at your heartstrings. It can be
1: done. This film just doesn't walk that line very well. Well you look at how Hitchcock balances the two, right? Like the thirty nine steps, you're never thinking to yourself, There's no danger here. Yeah, whatever, this is just a lark. Like, he actually has tension to it, even though there's some very funny stuff. You know, you have the 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 two characters handcuffed to each other in a hotel overnight. And that's an example of a whirlwind romance where you actually get character building so you can at least go along with the journey. Mm-hmm. You don't get that here. Uh, this movie just feels like it's throwing in the elements. I, I will say for me, it didn't bother me quite, maybe as much as you where at least the espionage story of it all somewhat worked in terms of his personal journey the george sanders characters beginning middle and end i was like this mostly works for me it's just you know you you create these situations where you're trying to feel some sort of you know
0: sympathy for your lead character like he's just he's technically just lost his wife and child yeah from being forced on this mission he didn't choose the mission and then it's it's telling you jokes the next scene and i just think you've not allowed the baggage of that problem to be carried by the character he's just forgotten it the next thing he doesn't once mention his wife again he isn't there's not a scene of him going i wish i was at home or you know i i miss i miss bread and butter i i miss you know kidney pie
1: <laughs> or no conflict between maybe burgeoning feelings for the dolores Del rio character and then knowing he has a wife and child at home you don't get that sort of uh inner workings of what he's experiencing at least emotionally with the dolores character
0: which is done better in another film we tackled some time ago was it confidential agent with lauren bacal yeah Uh, i can't remember the name of the lead actor is it
1: charles boyer charles boyer yeah
0: yeah hey it's all coming back to me now and that's you know he had a, a wife and child i think that were were killed And he didn't really want to take a lover for a while. And then his walls are broken down eventually by Lauren Bacall. And they eventually form a very brief love affair at the very end of the film. Like it's earned. It's like one of the last scenes they basically fall in love.
1: Yeah, like the Lauren Bacall character didn't really work for me in that movie. But the movie does acknowledge the seriousness of his past. And how he is having trouble getting over those feelings to actually open himself up to a relationship with her. This movie skips all that sort of stuff it does feel like they really just kind of and i don't know if that's the case with the original script but it feels like they almost edited out all the character building stuff in favor of just the espionage plot and
0: and some action
1: yeah hmm.
0: that's a shame that is a shame Are there any more dislikes you want to bring up
1: i think my only other like dislike i could really say is this movie does have certain themes about like the inhumanity of the war machine and how they will just grind people up, Um, you don't really get a lot of payoff to it. I think the movie could have dug a little deeper. But again, going back to what I just said, it's like an 80-minute movie that's pretty much refined down to a spy plot. So not a lot of time for that kind of depth.
0: Yeah, I I want to tackle the knock list question in a minute, but let's look at any final notes that we have. I I have a couple of sort of question notes, if you're happy to go through that. Mm Mm-hmm. The first one is, I mean, the the, the major conceit of this film is that George Sanders' characters have a, a likeness to each other, and there is basically a double of him living in Germany that he assumes the position of. Now, do you think there's a double of Cam Smith out there? And if so, where is he and what is he doing?
1: Okay, I actually have some actual... Maybe a SpyHard's specific references for that answer. Wow. Uh, I'll tell... Well, I'll say first off, it has happened to me multiple times in my life where people have come up to me and approached me and they've been like, are you so-and-so? And they'll throw out a name. And I'm like, no. And they're like, oh, you look just like him. I've heard that a number of times in my life, which means I'm very generic. But that, uh, I could have told you that, brother. I could have told you that. That, uh, that sort of anecdote, yeah, I'm sure lots of people have had that. Sure. When I was in Las Vegas at the Star Trek convention, I was waiting in line for a photo op, and someone came up to me and approached me. Said, Hey, you're Walter Koenig. <laughs> no, not Walter Koenig. Uh, as I said, spy hard specific. Oh, they came up to me and said, Excuse me. And they looked nervous. And I said, Yeah, w- what is it? And they said, are you are you Rami Malek? And I was like, no. And he goes, for Mr. Robot? And this is around the Mr. Robot era. This isn't, uh, you know, the No Time to Die era. This is before that. And I just was like, no, no, sorry, it's I'm not him. And he said, are you his twin brother? Because I know he has a twin brother. That's pretty well known. And I said, no, sorry, no relation whatsoever. And the guy looked a little bummed out to walk away from me. <laughs>
0: I mean, where, where do you go with the conversation after that?
1: Yeah, I know, I know. I, I don't really see it, although that said, my sister has made fun of me for a number of years now for looking like him. She'll often, if he shows up at like an a- award ceremony or something like that, you know, the Oscars, Emmys, anything like that, she'll screen cap him on the red carpet and send it to me and be like, what are you doing on the red carpet right now? <laughs> I I imagine you still get that like every award season now and you're like, yep, that joke's still going. Yeah, it's been a running joke for a number of years Uh, for my sister, yes. So I've been meaning to ask you, though, what was it like to work with Daniel Craig in No Time to Die? Wonderful. Just what a mm. gem. What a treat. We went out for uh, pastries together. Oh, what a joy.
0: Uh, at least that solves our issue of getting interviews together for No Time to Die.
1: <laughs> it's just me on the view screen. View screen? <laughs> view screen. That's a Star Trek on the Zoom, I should say. Red alert. Yeah, right alert. There it is.
0: Um. Okay, well, that, that's you, actually. That's a very good answer. And I, I, I stare at your face at least about three or four hours every week, and I can say firmly, you don't look anything like Rami Malik. You don't see it either, huh? No. Yeah, some people do, and some people don't. don't I'm know. very
1: good with faces. I actually am very good with faces, and I don't see it. I've also gotten Fred Savage in the past when I was younger, but not so much now. I don't know who that is. He was on the TV show The Wonder Years. Um, maybe that didn't carry over there no no well i mean
0: i I have an actual answer to my own question but if we're talking like celebrity lookalikes when i had longer hair and people would let me know if they want want me to post a photo people used to say i look like david spade
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay i can't it's like i would say no but at the same time i'm like well i can kind of see that a little bit enough to like yeah that i would understand why people would say that you, you, you have experienced, Scott, with long hair,
0: short hair, and now no hair, so you, you've seen it all. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, I'm sure you pine for the days of the flowing locks. <laughs> Boy, do I. As do I. <laughs>
1: as do I. I've got one more note, but I'll throw it to you first. What have you got? Um, I actually had a question for you. At a certain point in the movie, George Sanders' character, as you said, the, the cover is he's dead, and they put on the front page of the newspaper a photo of him that says, Lost at Sea. If you, in your agent training, had your death faked, what does the newspaper headline say? Oh, I want something really fancy,
0: like eaten by alligators. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Or a a kite in half with a laser beam. Oh, that's, yeah, that's good. Yeah, like just,
1: I I want a death that no one's ever had published in a newspaper. Hmm. I mean, I don't care if mine's that original. Just give me, like, the great white shark death or something. Yeah, you, you want that send-off, don't you? I do, I do. And I know that, like, anyone who knew me in life, even though it's a fake story, is seeing that headline, they'll never forget me. They will always be like, remember when Cam was eaten by a great white shark? Like, what's so weird.
0: And they're like, who? And the guy's like, yeah, the guy guy's like Rami Malik. That's also true, yeah. <laughs> 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 Um. Yeah, I. I guess I. I'd, I'd go for yeah, like a laser beam or or something, something quite Bondy. Although I. I think I will at some point post a photo of the Lost at Sea newspaper clipping against the Sean Connery newspaper clipping from You Only Live Twice. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Good call. Yeah, I, I. don't think he's he's killed at sea. In that, I think he's just buried. Dead. Yeah, buried at yeah. sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my second question is: I mentioned earlier on. But uh, George Sanders' character of Baron von Robach, his nickname is Putzi. Now, I don't know my German. If there's any German-speaking listeners, do let us know Putzi has any meaning or it's like a derivative of, of another word, Putzi. But is that one of the
1: crappiest nicknames you've ever heard? I couldn't understand what they were saying, actually, for a while. I was like, are they saying Bootsy? And then I was like, Putzi? And I'm write- like writing various spellings down with question marks next to them in my notes. So uh, yeah, uh, that is a pretty bad nickname. If I can't even uh, pick up what it is exactly, it's not great. But also, uh, it, ugh, it's just a it's just a bad nickname. And I want to apologize to anyone who has that nickname in life. By the way,
0: yeah any 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 uh, any putsies out there, we love you. You're putting up with a lot right now.
1: Yeah, you're you're
0: you're putseeing up with a lot right now, <laughs> including
1: our extended puns. Uh, Cam, do you have any more uh, notes for us? The only thing that jumped out to me that I also made a note on was that when, um, when Michael Bruce and his assistant get to shore after being kicked off the boat, they you know pull themselves up and there's like the sign that says like, to Berlin, 437 kilometers. And they're like, well, we're here. <laughs> and I was like, wait, how are they going to navigate that distance? This is like the 19 teens. This is going to take a while. Do you think they hitchhiked their way to Berlin? Is it like hitchhike mixed with train, I suppose? He he arrived on a train. Well, they'd already found him by that
0: point because he had the hero's welcome. So they already knew he'd landed. So he must have like turned up at the police station or a military base and gone from there.
1: Yeah, I just kind of laughed when they're like, well, here we are.
0: Start walking. And he started like whistling hi-ho, hi-ho or whatever the <laughs> German version is of that. Yeah, yeah. My last note was more of a, a question as well. We've obviously tackled a few films from the 1930s now. Where does this sort of fall amongst the bunch?
1: Um, um, I would put, yeah, 39 Steps is definitely then number one. Man Who Knew Too Much, the original, is probably number two. This one's kind of like lower middle tier. I would put it above British Agent. And maybe, maybe The Emperor's Candlesticks? That one was a little wonky in places. But, uh I don't know, like I none of them were bad. I don't think we've hit a thirties one yet where I'm like, Oh my god. There's no like nineteen thirties Spy Kids three or four where it is just torture to get through. They're all pretty watchable. This one just doesn't have the kind of the the better qualities that you see even in a kind of a mid tier movie like Matahari. I, I definitely struggle with British Agent a lot more than this.
0: Yeah. But I don't. I, I I think I had more fun with Emperor's Candlestick or Matahari or the Hitchcocks than this though. So I think it's going underneath all of those. Okay. It's not
1: the bottom, but nowhere near the top. No, I I agree. It's kind of that, just above the bottom, but not quite the bottom. The best place to be. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> well, Cam, it's 11 p.m. It's my favorite time of the day. It's goulash time, and
1: therefore let's talk about the knock list. What do you think? Well, we did just rank it. So I think uh, that's pretty much given away. So let's not belabor it. No, it is not making the knock list. Lancer Spy, check it out on YouTube. It's available, but this is not one of the all-time great spy films.
0: No, it's 80 minutes, folks. It can't be that bad, can it? Maybe it is, but there's things to enjoy there. I think the film doesn't rise to its own potential. The story Mm -hmm. is interesting. I think it could have been better delivered. I think it actually could have been remade later to more success the story actually could still track now if someone wanted to make a film out of it it's definitely got some legs unfortunately it's also got a thumb in a uniform so mixed results unfortunately it's a
1: no from me and when you look at some of the other 30s ones we've tackled some have aged better than others this one does feel a little creakier in comparison to the hitchcock stuff or uh, um matahari it's definitely a, a a cut
0: and paste studio film made on a low budget or medium sized budget and just sort of put out in a very small space of time, yeah, it's all on sets practically. I don't think there's any location shooting apart from maybe the bit in Berlin and... uh the escape, probably, yeah, the escape with the water and stuff, but that's all probably like just on a set like just the side of a sound stage, yeah yeah that and that's it, but hey. If you're following along with us and you're watching every film, we salute you. I'm sure you'll probably agree with our thoughts on the film. But there you go, folks. Two no's, and as such, Lancer Spy is not making the knock list. The dossier on the film is complete and filed, as usual, as classified. Cam, I'm going to bat the question back to you now. What are we talking
1: about next week? Well, it's back to Bond Town, baby. We are tackling 2015's Spectre
0: yes indeed do you like sepia filters and do you like James Bond well this Hmm. may well be the perfect film for you your mission should you choose to accept it is to join us next week as we tackle 2015's Blofeld-filled Spectre and if you like what you heard on this show please consider leaving us a five star review wherever you get your podcasts and do not forget to follow us Discreetly, of course, on social media, at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, Cam, draw my bath and polish my boots.